Welcome to my podcast, All Things Agriculture. I'm your host, Eric Carey, and thank you for tuning in. On this podcast, get to know those who work in agriculture on a daily basis. Find out what they do, the challenges and opportunities they face, and what they think the future holds for agriculture. You'll also have a chance to hear what they do for fun when they aren't working hard to feed the world. If you're watching on YouTube, please consider subscribing to my channel and leaving a thumbs up and a comment below. If you prefer the audio version, you can listen for free on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. And if you'd like to get into contact with me, please email me at allthingsagr at gmail.com. Thank you and enjoy the episode. All right, welcome to my new channel, All Things Agriculture. Um, it's been a long couple of weeks getting to this point, getting the equipment, getting the software, and I'm. I might not look if I'm really excited right now. It's uh. Like I said, it's been a long road, a lot of challenges, and to finally get here and be recording an episode is awesome. So I'm really, really excited. The channel will mostly be, as the uh, as the as the title says, all thing all things agriculture, basically just talking with farmers and people who work on farms or work with the farming community and agriculture uh, throughout all the different spectrums. And uh, just to get their story and let people see that, you know, farmers are a small percentage of the population and we feed the entire country, uh, what, 1%, they say, 1% of the population feeds everyone. And I think it's uh, it's be a good way for non-agricultural people to get to meet farmers and find out what our everyday t- challenges are, where we came from, why we do what we do where we think the industry is going. So uh, I hope that you, you know, stay involved, watch the episodes. Hopefully every week I'll put up a new episode interviewing a different person who, you know, I, I have a wide, a wide range of people I uh, intend to contact and see if they'd like to come on. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce uh, Tyler Beck. A uh, very good friend of mine. Uh, thanks, Tyler, for coming on. You're my guinea pig. Get to be the uh, the first guest on the show. So if this crashes and burns, I guess you'll go down with me. Shoot, I feel honored to be the uh, first up on the board, and this will be the whole test run. We'll see how we go. I'll be back for the 100th uh, annual uh, anniversary episode. So we'll start it off here tonight, though. Yeah, if we make it to 100, then I guess... Uh, yeah, doing I guess something we're, right. we're doing something right, yeah. So, uh, no, but anyway, so Tyler and I, we we go back quite a ways. We met, what, it's been about a decade, 10 years ago? We met at a track meet in Southern Cayuga, senior year, and little behold, we would know that that would be the beginning of four years of undergrad, including a trip abroad to... <laughs> New Zealand, two or three other international trips, 
and many years of staying in touch after school. So now we're what? Uh, seven years out, eight years yeah, out, almost it'll be eight years. It this flies. This June. It, yeah, it absolutely flies. And the the whole ironic thing is that we uh, we grew up down the road from each other, but we never we never knew each other. If you Google Maps, probably has it like three miles apart, the two dairies, but we're just on different sides of the school districts, and uh, yeah, just yeah. happened to be going opposite ways and knew of them, but. Never got to meet him, and now it's, <laughs> yeah. it's in my wedding and my best friend to this day, and that'll probably never change. Yeah, no, it's in, uh, you know, we still do a lot together. We, you know, we still only live 10, 15 minutes, you and your wife, Steph, and your little boy, Addison. It's uh, it's always uh, a lot of fun to hang out with you guys, and it's uh, it's been, been cool to see you grow over the years as well. So. Yeah, and... <laughs> The farming community is a very tight-knit community, as you'll soon to find out. Everyone you probably have on here will know each other or all their guest speakers through someone or know them directly, and it's very cool how tightly knit the ag is. It's basically like one big high school. Yeah, yeah, or one one big fraternity, right? That's <laughs> for better or worse, probably. <laughs> yeah, so we were both members at Cornell, the Alpha Gamma Rho fraternity, ag, national ag fraternity, and uh, yeah, we had, we had a lot of fun, and like Tyler said, there'll be many guests to come who also went the same path through agr as we did so it's uh but so yeah you uh you have a dairy your or your family has a, has dairies in uh yep like i said about three minutes from eric he's here in Groton, new york we're in dryden so um right down the road we to this day have uh two thousand cows that's on two different locations the original location was started up by my great-grandfather and that would be in 1920 he started by uh actually sharecropping with the dean of the ag school of cornell at the time so basically how it works is he'd rent the land from the dean of the ag school use some of the money he'd make it year after year to pay back as like rental as uh like an option to buy type agreement and then over time he had enough money to start buying it out and it became a back farms uh standalone business and it's completely separated from uh, the Cornell land and then it got turned over to my grandfather and then my dad and I'll be the fourth generation or am the fourth generation out of my brother so yeah it's lasted many generations and hopefully one day it'll be my son who's the fifth and it'll go on from there live uh, see to live a long healthy uh, life the business yeah so wow 100 100 years this year then Century farm. Yeah, it depends on how you look at it because that's when they started sharecropping the land, oh. but wasn't officially formed as a business until maybe I think the early 40s because that sharecropping went on, I think, for a couple of decades. So it's 100 years of working it and turning it into what it is today. But if you're technical, I think we're like at 80 for the business itself. So okay. close enough. We can round up. So the the original farm that is where the site is now in Freeville, that was the original share cropping yeah if you went to the farm today where the parlor is the original farm was probably about a half a mile down the hill from that because in the 80s there was actually a barn fire that forced us to either kind of retrofit and rebuild what was pretty much burned down or just start new and it sounds like i obviously wasn't there but enough of it was damaged that it was just made more sense to start new and build something from the ground up you could make exactly how you wanted to and just start over and have a clean board to work from 
So that so that would have been your your dad and grandfather would have it was your dad home. Yeah, he was farm? basically just coming into the business, and that all happened, and so they decided together to collectively move and start fresh. And now what you see is uh, what they kind of created, and just it's branched off and grown from. When my dad came home, I think it was about 200 cows, and now that site is 1,200, so it's grown by about 1,000 cows. And in 2013 is when we uh, purchased the Virgil Farm, which is about nine miles from the home site, and that became our first satellite farm. So that has the other 800 cows to this day. So is there a, just, I guess, a, just a business decision for purchasing the uh, satellite dairy in Virgil, or was there... Yeah, branching out at that point, a farm can only grow so big until it has to start expanding everything and from that you really have to look at what makes the most sense for a business because if you're looking at having to expand the parlor the land the calf and heifer program more employees your machinery that turns out to be doing everything at once which can be really expensive so it might make more sense to look for an existing facility that already has 80 percent of that in place then you can just improve and evolve on what's already there so that was a, a smart move for us and it turned out to work out for the best because uh being nine miles away, you can share equipment, you can share people, and it's close enough that you can use a lot of your existing resources and make them more efficient by using them over a whole nother business, essentially, and and doubling up. So it's been a great business model, and hopefully uh, we can continue to do so. The satellite farm is kind of boxed in. It's got two roads on the side, a gully on the other side, and the four sides a neighbor's house. So we're pretty much as full as we can get over there, so we're happy at the growth and the uh, size of the business, but our options are open to see what uh, the future holds. No one knows in this world, especially in this year, what uh, the future holds for anyone, let alone our little business. So we're going to just take it day by day and no crazy plans at this point, just trying to survive and, and uh, keep going every day, showing up. Yeah. Just kind of get through those, uh, what used, uh, it probably still is a three year milk cycle is now like a six month, <laughs> up and down joyride roller coaster yeah, of craziness year to year well good year bad year an okay year we thought that was cre- uh enough of a uh, roller coaster to ride and nowadays it's it's month to month instead of year to year or has been at least in 2020 i remember we did some budgeting at the beginning of 2020 i think it was in early march before covid like covid was coming it was it was still in china and I remember we're kind of like, wow, it, hopefully it just, you know, doesn't amount. New. Yeah, hopefully it doesn't amount to much. And, it you know, it's just a short period. And we were doing the, the you know, what's the milk price going to look like? And it's like, yeah, it's probably going to be a pretty good year. And about three weeks later, it was like, <laughs> wrong it answer. dropped multiple dollars. <laughs> and it was like a dollar a week. It kept dropping for a week after week. and Yeah, I think it it bottomed out at. Was it May milk was like 12 bucks, 13? Yeah, a rate at 13. Where in February, March, the price was, it was nine, I think it was pushing $20. It was nine, it was significantly higher, you know, six, seven dollars, which you think about it. Imagine having a job uh, where you get paid 50 grand a year and then three months later, Two months later, your boss says, hey, um, yeah, you might want to take about 40% of that off. And that's all you're going to get paid from now. <laughs> For doing the exact same work yeah, every day. Yeah, and the exact so, same expenses. <laughs> yeah. So that's, uh, that's, I don't know. I'm really hoping this 
kind of resolves itself within the next three to six months, hopefully. But luckily, it's kind of, you know, for the most part. People have figured it out, and they made the shift. And it's settled down. Um, I mean, it's... The big confusion early on was you saw people on the news, on the farmer end, dumping milk. And in the grocery stores, there was no milk. So people are wondering, what the heck is going on? You have farmers getting rid of 70,000 pounds of uh, milk off a tractor trailer going right down to the gutter into the manure pit. And then their neighbors at the store are going into the local grocery store and milk was sold out and people couldn't put two and two together. But the reality was back in March when this happened and no one could predict the seismic shift that uh, you had all the schools that were consuming milk shut down, all these sports stadiums that were consuming tons of milk all shut down, the restaurants all closed for that good solid month or two there. And the whole production shifted from all those outside sources to the stores and all these factories couldn't make that shift overnight from where milk was supposed to go and supposed to be bottled. So it was just this huge lag and reallocating milk to the right source. And that took a while, a few weeks to sort it on that few weeks was that turmoil spot where you had farmers dumping because all the factories were bottled up and couldn't get milk produced in the right spot. And it was just a whirlwind. But if we have to unfortunately go back to lockdown, hopefully they've got it figured out and got everything sorted back out that it shouldn't be as uh, stressful this time around. Yeah, I really hope not. It's uh, um, it would be a disaster all over again. But it's that's a problem. It's like the farms never farms continued to produce. It was just the whole logistics. Once it got off the farm, where does it go? Because one thing that's so tough with especially dairy is it's so perishable. And if you don't get that product moved and moved in a timely fashion to a plant and get it processed, you know, it'll go bad. It can only, you're only allowed to have milk in your tank on your farm for, is it, I think, it, is it 48 hours or is it set? Yeah, it's no more than 48, I don't think. I think yeah, so like for our farm, we, we have a 5,000 gallon bulk tank and milk has to get picked up every other day. Um, so yeah, no longer than 48 hours. So the, the tank can get clean. So then milk's got to move off the farm. Then it sits in a truck and the truck has to get unloaded because that truck has more milk to pick up at another farm either later that day or the next day. And yeah, it was, it was pretty depressing when I saw some videos of farmers literally just opening the tank and letting it flow into the, like you said, into the gutter and, well, there's a day's worth of hard work down, literally down the drain. Mm-hmm. Could it's, take yeah, more it, literal. I, yeah, we, we laugh. You know, we're kind of laughing about, it, but it's, you know, it wasn't. It, it it's not funny, and it. Uh, I mean, it, heartbreaking. Farmers are known for working off of their slim margins for decades, and this obviously doesn't help that by any means. When your slim margin turns quickly negative, when it all goes out the door. Yeah. So, but um, so if you guys. You know, looking onward, like you said, you're just kind of treading, you know, just staying afloat, going with the flow. Is there anything down the road you see changing or? Just, yeah, waiting for things to stable out, obviously. Let all the uncontrollables work themselves out because we're not going to do anything drastic in this type of environment. It doesn't favor any sort of businesses from putting themselves at risk because everything else seems to be at risk at this uh, day and age. Long term, five to ten years. God, hope we uh, are out of this by five to ten years. Um, yeah, like I said, just like we were at the crossroads when we built our first satellite, that we have everything kind of maxed out on one farm, and now both farms that 
the most efficient way to grow the business is look for probably a third site to be close enough you could use those resources and double up on labor and use some of the same machinery and now work more ground and uh, have uh, a little extra labor tying in and keep everything uh, under one big umbrella that can be uh, balanced off each other. But that's uh, too hard to predict because you can't even predict the next week. So it's uh, we're just letting it letting it uh, go one day at a time. So with the having the two sites in terms of you know I know you, you know share equipment in terms of labor like are you are you floating between the two do you have one dairy that you work at and someone else is managing the other dairy or is your father looking after one how like what's the labor broken up what's you know between the two yeah so both farms have their independent hispanic crews that just stay right uh, at their own farm have housing right at the farm so they're there and uh, don't have to leave uh, the american management team on the cow side uh they go back and forth helping each other uh i go to the home farm and help lynn who's our home farm manager she comes to me and helps me with her check and hauling milk when i'm not there uh in virgil so we have a bunch of give and take in that department and then the shop crew um they kind of like custom crop a satellite farm in a way they come in when everything's ready harvest everything put it all in the bunks uh, seal it all up and come back when the next round of harvest is ready or comes to uh, spread the manure tank and clean it out in about a week and and uh, comes back when that's ready so they kind of treat us like a like a hired client where they come in do the work and then go back to the home farm because they're big shops set up at the home farm so okay so you're almost like you said you're like a you're essentially like a custom a custom uh harvester all that they that's that's how you use that it's not like the uh they almost it's like a, they write a check then the one farm writes a check to the other to yeah do we don't it. show it in the books but essentially that's what they're doing they kind okay. of um show up and do the work and then go back to the main shop where we, or the main farm where we invested in this big shop that you can pull in multiple pieces of equipment work on them and uh, work really efficiently we could have four or five different projects working next to each other so if something breaks on the satellite farm they'll take it back to the home farm to fix it and bring it back when it's all ready because that's just the most uh, efficient way to keep things moving so that'd be your brother's you're up your brother's avenue then Austin yeah. with the equipment. He joined us back in October, October of 2019 now. Yes, 2019, I believe. Uh, also went to Cornell, was a few, three years behind me. And um, yeah, he specializes in on uh, the crop and manure side of things. Well, I'm mostly uh, cows and labor on uh, um, cow labor, uh, Hispanic labor fluent in Spanish and that's a must nowadays being able to speak to them not just through uh hand motions but actually talk to them so you can get things done instead of trying to play the guessing game all day long you don't do what I do or it's like some Spanglish and pointing and trying to hope they understand get away with that for so long but when it's 2 a.m and they're calling at a, talking at a million miles an hour with a problem it's best to understand them so you can quickly know what to do and you aren't joking when you say you get calls at 2, 3, 4 a.m. Because there's been times where we went, I think it was last winter. It was about a year ago now. We were at the Farm Bureau State Annual Meeting in Albany. And we roomed together because we were going out. We were delegates voting for the county. And I'll never forget waking up. Like I said, it must have been 3 in the morning. And I hear someone whispering. I'm like, what? What is that? And then I realized they're whispering in Spanish. I realized it was you, and you were talking to some guy. You were trying not to wake me up, and I was like, oh, oh, that's 
that sucks and just rolled yeah. over went back to bed is that is that like uh is that a nightly occurrence or how often do you do you have to deal with night calls it always comes in waves for whatever reason you could go three months with nothing then you could go with a week with three calls or four calls at night and it's just the luck of the draw right now this past month it's been one of those seems like every couple of days you're getting something you're bothered with but then hopefully they'll turn around and you'll get nothing for three months so um yeah the parlor is the most expensive part of a dairy so from a business mindset, you want to maximize your most expensive part so you can make the most out of it and minimize uh, all those, basically that labor cost, that uh, investment in all those stalls and all that milking equipment. Um, so these farms are trying to milk cows around the clock, which means for us, if we're milking cows two or three times a day, you're milking for 20 hours a day and then washing for the other four hours a day. So there's not a minute that parlor's not doing something. And so that means if it's running 24 hours a day, it has a chance to break 24 hours a day. And that's when your phone gets to ring when uh, things don't quite go right. So are you most, or did you say quite a few, can you can quite, oh, wow, I got to, can you uh, solve a lot of the issues over the phone or are you going in lots of the time? That's where speaking fluent really helps. And now these Guados, uh, Guatemalans have, um, all smartphones just like we do which is very helpful because you can video chat them so they can actually show you on the phone uh, their problem just like it's uh you're having a skype conference and um you can make the decision right there if it's something that can wait till tomorrow if it's something you can talk them through to push a couple buttons or if it's something that they're not going to figure out and you got to go in so it's probably when you get a call i'd say it's 50 50 if you're going getting out of bed putting on your clothes and going to the farm or if it's something that can either wait or something they can finagle and get through a few more hours till it's uh time to actually go to work What's like the craziest, off the top of your head, the the one of the wildest or craziest calls you've ever, like, you, you, you get the call and you're like, what the hell did I just, what are they saying? Like, what, just crazy stuff. When they're trying to explain cows getting stuck where they shouldn't be, whether it's somewhere they took a wrong turn in the parlor and they're halfway down the pit, or if they're in between us, gates where they're kind of pinched and you got to be really creative and gentle with them to get them out or yeah you I look back at my phone and all the different pictures I take or they take and send to me and over the years you can just be like yep I remember that oh that was fun I remember that and you get some really uh, <laughs> funny looking stuff but locally uh these are all living breathing animals so you need to work quickly you need to work smartly but usually uh, everything comes out just fine you just need to be on call essentially and never have your phone on silent because you never know when something can go uh from smoothly to a uh, bad situation real quick. So you just got to always be available or have someone that's available that you can rely on that's close enough to come when those unfortunate things um, come up. Yeah, because that's a little, it's the, you never know when you'll get that call. And I get that to a point because, um, you know, basically if something happens, I'm the first one that gets a call. My dad, you know, he's, He'll get a call, but it's only if I don't answer, if I'm gone somewhere. You're back up. But luckily, you know, we're done milking by eight at night and we don't start up till four in the morning. So I have a good solid eight hours where I know they won't, I won't get a call unless something crazy, really bad happens. <laughs> and yeah, and, uh, you know, good thing cows can't text or call because it would never yeah, stop. It would never end. <laughs> cows are very needy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But. So, yeah, or um, I was trying to think, you showed me a video a while ago of uh, some funny stuff 
that happened. Or I don't know if it was really funny at the time, but look, I you know, looking yeah. at the video now, it's pretty hilarious. It's funny about a month later, but if you're the one fixing or you're the one paying for it, it's not as funny. Um, yeah, these Guatemalans come from essentially third world countries. They're your prime, your prime uh, labor force, at least on the barn side, and that's simply because. It's relatively long hours. They have to work outside all winter long to a degree outside as in in the barns where it's uh, still the same temperature as outside. So essentially it's when it's 20 degrees outside, it's 20 degrees in the barns or maybe 30 degrees, a little warmer, but not that much. So Cow, Cows insulate a little bit. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, finding local help that wants to put up with all that, just they look for things that are inside. They look for jobs that are less strenuous on the body. They look for... Things that uh, might have a little higher paycheck or more benefits. So it's, uh, yeah, slim pickings when it comes to help on the farm. And every farmer, probably if you ask him what his top two challenges is, uh, labor would be one of those top two. So for us, the best avenue was to look for Hispanic help, people who are here, very hardworking people, but uh, looking for jobs so they can uh, support their families, basically take like 50% of their paycheck and instantly send it home to these third world countries that have small houses, dirt floors, that some places and uh i really struggling to to live week to week so they rely on these american family members american uh um help to yeah make them uh pay their bills every day um so yeah going back to the original question they obviously are coming from places where they've never driven a skid steer never driven uh a feed truck and so when you put them in uh, these situations you try and train them the best you can but it uh, doesn't always come up too well yeah, I, sometimes I call skid steers uh, remodeling machines because if you want to remodel a barn, it can happen really quickly when you get someone who doesn't know what they're doing. They start whacking poles off and smashing up gates. and yeah. Soon enough, you don't have a choice. <laughs> yeah, one of the best was, well, that two weeks ago, that video was uh, uh, Hispanic uh, was done with the shift. It was about 3 in the morning. He was filling up the skid steer, getting ready for the next guy's shift, and he must have fallen asleep in the skid steer for about 30 minutes, this is all from camera footage, looking on later, woke up, didn't really realize where he was, what he was doing, just put the seat down on the skid steer and started to drive off, and needless to say, he forgot that the uh, the pump, uh, the diesel pump was still hooked up and filling, or filled the skid steer by that point, but still hooked up, so he just drove away and completely tore <laughs> off the <laughs> nozzle, the whole attachment feeding down into the tank, so looking on the video, the footage from the camera film, if you watch in slow-mo, it's just diesel flying everywhere. It spilled out. The next morning, we had to go and soak it all up with bedding and spread it and get rid of it before uh, it uh, basically just sat there for days. So we always want to make sure we clean up, clean messes yeah. up, even if it's not my mess. So got to be responsible and make sure it doesn't turn into something more dangerous. So clean it up. And uh, yeah, it's uh, endless <laughs> things. Yeah. You can train as much as you want, but there's always stuff like that that <laughs> just happens. <laughs> part of it yeah when you show me that video i just lost that you just see uh he drives away all frantically and it's just like boom and just diesel. a firework of oh, gas man. <laughs> yeah no that's yeah get that stuff cleaned up in a hurry and then you put them in a barn like eric was saying where they have about four inches of clearance on either side of them and they're <laughs> you've hopefully trained them enough trained them enough that they kind of know what they're doing but yeah, it doesn't always work out as yeah. smooth as you'd hope. Because everyone always, I mean, I've done it. I'm sure you've done it. We all hit stuff, and it's just a matter of not if, but when, or when's the next time you're going to hit something because no one's perfect. And 
it's amazing a lot of these guys you know like you said they come from countries or they've never driven operated any of this equipment before and they hop on yeah they they hit stuff and you know it might kind of drive you nuts but at the same time it's like you know <laughs> i did the same thing when i started you can't you can't say anything it's just like yeah i know it's just try not to do it again yeah. as long as if he doesn't become a uh rep- repetitive that's the same guy yeah. three times in a week doing yeah. it then you have a problem then you might have a problem maybe uh scraping the barn isn't such a good job for that guy but so uh i was wondering if you guys like down the road do you plan to uh robots or rotary or have you seen heard about that rotary going up in western new york it's all robotic mm-hmm. we toured one in germany i think our senior year where it basically yeah, has did. it's a carousel so like the rotaries that you have the humans uh, operating nowadays it basically takes out all the humans and it's this mechanical arm that's doing all the work the humans would be doing and dipping the cows and uh prepping them and attaching the units and essentially it probably runs with one person i should i should put a link in what in the description to a, uh, I'll put a link in to a robotic rotor, just a rotor in general. If, you know, people who aren't watching who don't know what we're talking about, um, just to give them a little background. But it's pretty cool, and also pretty expensive. Yeah, yeah, very expensive. But I think the, from what I understand, the robot robotic rotary going up is different than the one we saw in Germany. It's all the unit. It's all the unit goes on the cow. And she's prepped, dipped, milked, and then dipped again, and the unit comes off. It's like oh, all wow. the, there's all these solenoids that divert milk and divert waste. It's yeah, it's it's and I guess when the uh, when the or if the robot goes down, you can just unbolt, take some bolts off, and you can actually slide the entire robotic unit out set it on the ground and you can have a backup and you slide it in so screw everything f- in and then keep going and then you can set the one off, the one off to the side and work on it and fix whatever you know what solenoid or electrical wiring harness goes bad and Not so i have it, any downtime yeah or v- limited that's yeah when you yeah well hopefully it'll be interesting to i can only imagine with all those solenoids Getting that oh. call and having to pinpoint the exact one, that's, yeah. Uh, yeah, you need a whole degree in that <laughs> field in general. Technology's great, but when it comes to wire electrical going bad. Yeah, yeah, so for us, I, speaking those not in the thousands or hundreds of thousands, you're talking in the millions of dollars for multiple millions of dollars for an investment like that. So it's not anything we're thinking of now or in any sort of future, I think talking robotics because year after year minimum wage is going up uh, overtime rules are coming into play the thresholds for overtime are eventually coming down so it's so many factors working against uh, your standardized labor but if we were going to do anything robotic we'd wait a little longer for someone to perfect a robot on a parallel track so parallel means all the cows line up side by side to get milked instead of on a carousel which is a big circle they line up and basically it's a line segment so they line up uh, from one to we have 20 cows on a stall, so we milk 40 cows on it at a time, 20 on one side, 20 on the other side. So they walk in single file, they make a 90-degree turn, and then they line up side by side by side. Um, and then if they could design, I think they've thrown around ideas before, but no one's perfected it, design a robot that runs on a track just back and forth and goes up and down that parallel and can uh, 
somehow have a mechanical arm that does all the same things of prepping the cows and dipping the cows. That would be the easiest way to use our existing parlor to retrofit it into something robotic to save labor. But that's not coming down the road uh, anytime in the next two to three years, I don't think, or five, you're talking. Yeah, we're, we're out of ways before that. Because basically the only robotics that really exist are, well, for milking that I know of are that rotary going in and then just the uh, the single stall out in the barn. You don't even have a parlor. You have just a barn where uh, stalls and alleys and where the cows eat and sleep and lay. And out in that barn, there's actually a single stall where cows come, go into a little, it's almost like a side room, get milked, and they walk back out and they go right back out into their pen. Like I said, I'll I'll, I'll link some videos so people want to kind of see exactly what we're talking about. Like I said, for the ones who don't know, and get an idea of what we're referring to. It's, it's amazing stuff, though. I mean, we know, we both know people who have the single stall robots and some people, I think they all really like them. It's just getting the cows used to using them is can a be transition. a nightmare. <laughs> but once they said, once it's up and going, you know, they the guys seem to really like them. So I think down the road for my sake, I can definitely see them in the future at some point. Just I'm I'm a lot smaller. So Tyler, like he said, he's two thousand on two sites. We're about three hundred on just a single site. So putting in four single stall robots is a lot pretty easy for us to do compared to having to figure out robotics on a two thousand cow dairy. It can be done and it is done, but it's just mm-hmm. a there's a lot more upfront little, investment yeah. that dairies usually aren't known for uh, making those grand uh, those grand up purchases just because it takes so much to get going and then if you have a bad year then you could put yourself in a really dangerous position to stay afloat and a lot of farmers are generally pretty conservative that they don't like to take that sort of risk but there are ones that out there have made it but it's uh it's scary especially when you have a year like 2020 where in january it looks great and then two months later basically the worst hell you could imagine starts to come true and things come crashing down so so I guess even beyond dairy, you know, what kind of other stuff do you like to do? I know you're beyond dairy. I know um, you're an avid skier. My father's an avid skier. He's uh I've been off and on and off again on again through the years and now that um I'm not running as competitively as in high school, it's a little less of a danger. So yeah, I've been on again more so than not and yeah, it's beautiful. We have a home in Montana and it's um a great getaway from the farm for a week or five days or something to get out to uh, the true countryside, the true uh, mountains, and uh, see what that whole lifestyle is about. Because it's a it's a thrill out there. It's a it's another world. You're going down pitches that you wouldn't be comfortable walking down at times. And now you have two skis on your foot. You're trying to stay up on balanced and <laughs> go down what that mountain is. I think 50% black or double black diamonds. I think the status stall it was. Something crazy like that where it's, <laughs> you got to be careful which chairlift you get on because you go up one and <laughs> the only way down is a double black diamond. So you better be careful. <laughs> you know yeah. what you're uh, getting into before you step foot because it can be dangerous. They don't give you an e- they don't have like an easy trail for people who are stupid and go up the wrong, the wrong chairlift. Like, no, nah, I think that's where Darwinism survival the <laughs> fittest comes in. If you're not smart enough to get on the, avoid the double black chairlift, you deserve to. <laughs> 
four fight your way down. If you can't read the warning, expert yeah, only. They have those. <laughs> yeah, they have to. I mean, it's a yeah, liability, but it's uh, that's what makes it great. They have everything. They have the green, uh, the great green groomers for the small kids, all the way up to a tram lift. You go to the tippy top peak where you're over. What forget what the footage over ten thousand feet up there. Think is it eight, ten, eleven? It's up there, so it's uh, yeah, it's a long way down. Our local ski mountain here, Greek Peak, it probably takes two minutes to get to the top to the bottom. But if you were gonna do go to the top to the bottom in that mountain, you're probably forty minutes of skiing or something to go to the tippy top. It's it's forty old. minutes to go all the way to the top, all the way to the bottom. Yeah, you're at least a half hour and probably pushing forty minutes if you're not racing down. It's it's a <laughs> it's a different world. Uh, well, you have a gondola; those are pretty quick, yeah, aren't they? Right. Or, no, just yeah. just ski down. Yeah, once you get to the top, um, the skiing it's, time to get down, I'm I'm saying is probably wow. thirty to forty minutes because you go down probably halfway to the mountain and then you go hit the groomers to go the rest of the way. And yeah, if you're, it's exhausting when you uh going down to pitch where it's trying to stay afloat and <laughs> your verticals like this where you uh really are working to to stay within the terrain. That uh, yeah, you're not just skiing the whole thing and going from stop to bottom. You have to take multiple breaks no matter how good a shape you're in and. Catch your breath because it's a full body workout. Skiers are very athletic. Yeah, that's nuts. See, you're probably making your own. You make your own trail coming down when you're that high up. It's just fresh powder, and you just go. Or is there a general direction, or is it just yeah, kind of? It's only one way down. You know, you're enough as my dad. You know exactly where all the nooks and crannies are. Where not only the locals essentially know about, and you can on a snowy day, you could probably find fresh powder. Uh, in multiple places that no one's really done, so it's uh, just a giant playground. Jeez, pretty wild. And the home you guys have out there—that's in—that's actually on. It's on the mountain, right? It's, it's on the close to the base. Yeah, so basically, you can—you have to take a car to the mountain. You can just put on your skis and uh, basically ski down part of the driveway, which is usually plenty snow covered that you're not going to wreck anything, and then uh, ski right to the chairlift that'll take you right up. So it's—it's uh, it's basically that's what he pictured as a retirement home years ago and a few years ago we made it his reality and now that it's uh we've invested in it, it's in the family for generations to come so we all have to be skiers at this point because yeah how could you not take advantage of such a cool opportunity such a cool uh environment and uh yeah blessed to have a uh, a place out there that we can uh, get away from the hectic day-to-day farm uh, farm lifestyle um so this year i have a two-year-old and hopefully he can uh get skis under his foot and uh learn <laughs> the balancing act and do the pizza down the magic carpet and uh so a good trainers with uh, my dad and uh, stepmom that uh, he should uh, be a, a uh, superstar by age three. Is that what's the age you can start teaching? I think two to three is common. I mean, all the it's like any sport. All the kids that start in that age are the ones that grow up being completely nasty at it and just can do anything. So yeah, it's not out of the out of the realm. So skis and skates too, right? You gonna you have him? Yeah, is he skating yet? We're hockey fans, and um, we took him once this fall, this winter, about a month ago, a little before Thanksgiving, and it was about what you'd picture a two-year-old on skates going. It's <laughs> basically we held him up, and he sprawled around for about five minutes, and then was done with it. While we skated for a little longer, but it'd be yeah, definitely want him to do uh, something. We can't force him to do anything. It's whatever he wants to do, but. It's definitely not going to be sitting in front of a TV screen or any sort of screen for uh, hours on end. We're a very traditionally very um, outgoing and um, active family that we uh, love to do things outside and get involved with teams. I think sports are huge for any sort of development 
um, with kids and teach you so many different things that you can't learn in the classroom. So yeah, he'll be, uh, he'll have his options, but he'll be choosing one of them because there's so many benefits from that sort of uh, activity. It's so sad to see all those shut down this year, but hopefully come 2021, we can start to uh, get back to some sort of realm of normalcy. Yeah. Cause you guys are, you know, avid Cornell, you and stuff, the whole hockey that I assume the hockey season is it's going but you guys obviously can't go this year yeah can't. and actually the ivy league they shut it down so no ivy league sports so oh there's no hockey at all then it's going but we're uh any ivy league schools are sidelined so that's even more heartbreaking that the sport you love is going but your favorite team can't play so it's <laughs> the biggest teaser of all it's uh feels so bad for the players and the coaches and the seniors especially but and last year they were ranked were they number one going into they were about to go into the tournament weren't they like yeah. they had a chance to win it all last year didn't they the guys and girls team hockey teams uh, were both number one in the beginning of march when everything started coming crashing down and the girls never won a national championship the last time the guys won it was 1970 so we were ready for a historic season Jeez. and it couldn't have been worse timing they had their best chances in decades and <laughs> it got uh ripped apart but that's to certain people that probably seems minute because people are losing <laughs> lives and loved yeah. ones over this so this is uh no, yeah that's what affects us but i'm sure as many other uh horrible horrible stories out there so this is it's all perspective but. yeah no yeah it's just a game life goes on yeah it's mm -hmm. one thing when you lose your job that's a completely <laughs> it's yeah, that's that's sure. real life so but and you were, I mean, growing up, you were a hell of an athlete, runner. And I remember I used to, oh, like you said, we met at a track meet our senior year, and you ran the 800. I, as funny as it sounds, I ran the 800. I remember, I don't think I was, I wasn't even fast enough to run in the same heat as you because you were typically like either number one or number two at every single meet. That was, yeah, skiing wasn't my real, uh, um, strength I wanted to find something I could thrive at and running is what I quickly found seventh grade was something I did was able to stick out from the crowd and yeah it was a, a great escape from high school stress everyone it's a big challenging time for everyone going through so many changes and that was my escape and something I could uh, thrive in and could uh, really uh, develop in and so it was my it was my getaway and yeah it worked out great because it took me to a bunch of state meets and got to meet all my best friends through the track program and had a great coach and pushed me hard to do break physical limits, mental limits was great for time managing school and athletics. Cause, uh, uh, when you go to college, that's something you're definitely not gonna have your parents, or your coach to help you with. You got to learn that on your own to balance, uh, or, uh, balance your academics with, uh, whatever your other extra extracurricular activities were. And Eric, in my case, it was that and, uh, fraternity shenanigans. So it was a fine line. We had a balance between academics and, uh, fraternity activities, which was, uh, also, probably one of the best experiences of my life that brotherhood is something that uh those people are going to be probably closest to me more so than anyone i'll probably meet for the rest of my life so agr has done uh wonders and wonders and i'll uh continue to support and get back to that organization because i've gotten so much from it over the years and yeah a great group of guys brings a bunch of guys that have a common core together and all family of within agriculture all um have some ties to agriculture so they um really share a strong bond there and it only grows the four years you're there with that group of guys so great great times yeah there's a we could fill up a lot of time telling stories of the agr days but i think we'll uh we'll leave those on the shelf for right now <laughs> but uh no it's i mean it's, it's really cool when you think about it how 
you know, you're in this, you know, in this fraternity with guys and not just dairy, but also all different types of agriculture, agritourism, wineries. Um, you know, one guy was in methane digesters. Uh, hopefully I'll have him on here. I got to give him a call. And, uh, it's, it's crazy when you meet all these people and then literally you can call any of them at any time. If you have an issue or a problem and say, Hey man, like I want to pick your brain about this or that. Cause we all, all farms, all dairies aren't the same. We all operate differently and yet we're able to take strengths from each other. What, what, you know, what does your farm do? Well, what is your farm weak at? And we can, you know, it's, it's kind of cool how you can collaborate with one another. I know there were, it sounds funny to people who aren't involved in agriculture or farming, but I remember a lot of late nights, uh, sipping on drinks and talking about what do you, you know, what are you going to do on your home farm when you go home or, you know, all these, it, you know, it sounds really funny, but that's, that's what we did lots of nights when guys would, you know, just sit around and chat or we'd watch YouTube videos of farming fails or, you know, it's just, <laughs> it sounds can... so stereo, you know, so stereotypical farming, but it was, you know, I, yeah, like you said, it was, it was the best four years and I wouldn't trade it for nothing. Yeah. It was my parents. I think that told me that hey, your high school friends are great, but they'll have nothing on your college friends. Those are the friends you're going to have for decades on end those are the ones you'll be going to weddings in and be at uh, reunions and they're the ones that uh you'll really remember and actually uh, stay in contact with and i think i have two high school friends that i've stayed in contact with now that i'm we just had our 10-year high school anniversary um we didn't have any sort of event but i think there's two people now that were 10 years out that i can uh, still probably talk to month to month and on uh, college end is can't even count don't even know yeah tenfold twentyfold fortyfold of that number so it's yeah it doesn't even compare yeah yeah same i remember my mom telling me the same exact thing she said your high school friends you'll be friends with but the college friends are the friends you'll have for life and i was like no way because you know i was involved in sports growing up football team really close to a lot of guys and i still am i still talk to some guys um that I went to high school with not as often as it's crazy to sound as often as I see like you or any other uh, Cornell guys. And it's just, I don't know what it is, but you, uh, you know, you, you don't grow apart from them, but it's just, I don't know. You just lose those four years. You're so connected. I think the one thing about college, especially being a fraternity is you see everyone at their highs and their lows and it's, you, you know, when you go to high school, you can just, you know, for the most part, you can be in a good mood and kind of be the same person every day. But when you live with people or like we room together, there's days where you just, you aren't having it and you're going to, sh- you know, you might show a nasty side and you see, you know, you see that and it's like, and then you see you're at your happiest and it's, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's just a bonding experience. It's unique. Cause, uh, obviously your family, family, your blood relatives are obviously the famous quote is you can't choose your family, but this is a type of family you actually can choose because you can, you can rush fraternities and you can pick a group of guys who you think you'd fit in most. So essentially you're choosing a brotherhood and they become just that, a brotherhood, and you essentially get to choose a second family and you really have no idea at the time how how much that will change your life, not only your college experience but your life, and it's a, it's a huge blessing. I know uh, fraternities get put in the news all the time about these bad eggs and these bad uh, situations that uh, fortunately happen, but... Um, 
it's such a small percentage of the overall benefits that uh, that are just endless that you can name for uh, bringing a group of guys together that share a common theme that can uh, branch and uh, grow and benefit from each other and evolve those four years. It's yeah, uncomparable to probably almost anything I could think of. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's a lot like farming where a couple bad uh, videos or examples come out and they go viral and it puts a bad rep on the whole industry. But in general, ninety nine point five percent of uh, the industry is doing so much good, and that point five percent puts such a bad rep on everyone else that it's so sad that they get all the attention. Where every day there's just so much good going on and so much right going on that. It just goes unnoticed. Yeah, and I, you know, every every industry, I don't care who you are, they all have their bad apples. There's, you know, I got the police this year. <laughs> yeah, the That's police. A perfect example. Yeah. Who could? No one could live without a strong police force. And just look how much crap exactly. they're going through. It's such a sad uh, situation. There, yeah, there's bad apples in every bunch. That's just unfortunately the way it is. You know, like you said, the police are even uh, doc. You know, there's bad doctors out there but 99% of doctors are great and it is no different than farmers. 99% of farmers are great. You get that half to 1% if that, that are pretty are rotten and luck. The one thing with the way the margins are, you know, and especially in dairy, but you know, across the board in agriculture is you can't do a awful job and mistreat animals and do all that. Cause you wouldn't stand business. you, you can't you can't beat up or you know abuse the thing that makes you money it's like i like to tell people it'd be like working for apple and working on the manufacturing floor and telling your employees to uh throw every 10th ipod on the ground and step on it and then throw it in the box and send it you know you can't do that for very long before you start getting so many sent back or you know it's uh gonna be yeah out of business <laughs> exactly and it's the same thing with cattle you can't mistreat your cattle like that because they're your money makers and it's gonna come around to bite you and it's just like you said there's a lot of videos out there that people post and it's uh you know they're you know i don't like to see them either they're awful stuff but it's like that's not that's not what we do that's not what we learn to do that's not why we do it. I mean, I, this is kind of a question I want to ask you. Like, you know, why do you do? Why do you do dairy? Like, why didn't you do something else? You know, if you could have done anything else, yeah. would you? Never grew up actually knowing that. People grow up and by age five, they're like, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. And you might think that as a kid playing with your toy tractors in the sandbox. But um, going into college, I was not set on that. I don't think I was set on it till sophomore year when I really – got to know and really get embraced in the AGR Brotherhood and the other Cornell Animal Science uh, classmates and really understand that the people in the industry, this is a great example of the people I'd be dealing with and what they represent. And going home, I think that first summer was the first time I really went home and had a lot of responsibility on the farm and realized that it's not a job where you watch the clock waiting for um, the minutes to tick that by till it's five o'clock. You're so engrossed in what you do that the day's a 12 hour day can feel like two hours many times today. I mean, to this day I have uh, 12, 14 hour days and it feels like I just woke up sometimes before it's time to go home. And it's, uh, yeah, when you just get so engrossed and so, uh, in love with what you do, it's, uh, that's when you know, you've, uh, found, uh, you found it. There's so many statements or quotes out there. Like the famous one is 
if you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And it's probably so many farmers feel that exact same way. It's, it sounds so hard, the elements and the hard work it takes to do something like that for the small margins they make at the end of the day. But for so many of them, it doesn't feel like work because it's what they love to do and they can't envision themselves doing anything else. I know I was, uh, always loved statistics and math and finance to a degree, but, uh, with farming, it's so unique that you can put all those things together because in one single day, you're a financial consultant, you're a veterinarian, you're an electrician, you're a mechanic, you're you're a manager of people. It's 20 different hats you have to put on in a matter of a 12-hour day, and it's so unique that you can't go anywhere else and I think find that same sort of variation that it keeps you on your toes, and that's what makes these days go by so quick and makes it so fun and challenging. Half of the challenge is the fun. So, yeah, that's what I figured out through college and the people around me, these Eric and my other 50 uh, brothers at AGR, knowing that those would be the people I'd be working next solidified that this is uh, this is for me. This is what I want to do. If I could give you, if, if I told you farming was off the table, you know, you aren't going to do it. What, what would you do? Like, you know, what do you think would have been a different career path? Just curious see what you'd say some sort of statistician i always love numbers tracking numbers patterns and numbers it sounds so dull but it's it seems fun and they make a lot of money i think good statisticians i think do pretty well for themselves and support their families that's always been important to not make a lot of uh money in a sense of a material way but just to have a safekeeping for my family and always keep make sure my family comes first so that's a way to make sure they are uh, they're always uh, given the best life possible and that's uh, farming. That's how we've uh, had to kind of slowly grow over the years because we always want to do what's best for our family. So we started at a couple hundred cows. And if you don't diversify or do something unique, I know you're in the grazing, um, not industry, but the grazing category, that you have a great way of cutting costs and doing things way cheaper and way um, easier than a lot of people. Maybe not easier is the right word, but uh, doing things uniquely that you don't have to buy these thousands of dollars of feed bills because you can use a you have a strategic setup with land that um, you can use around you we don't have that so we had had to grow our business because we have such a tight margin off of that you have to have a lot of a lit a lot of things over a small margin that and eventually make a big margin that we can uh, live off of and give our family a, a decent lifestyle so that's how we've had to uh, grow our business over the years and large farms get a bad rep in the factory farm title but it's it's this business environment that's causing these farms to go big, all these regulations, these overtime rules, these minimum wage increases are all reasons farms have to get bigger because they have such a small margin they're working off of and they're getting smaller with every reg- regulation that passes that they have to grow and be more competitive to, to uh, basically eat up all these little costs so they can still live to see another day. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, every year, if you if you run the numbers and if you essentially stay static in your cow numbers or production, or if you don't reduce costs, your costs are always slowly, but surely just, you know, insurance, just, you know, overhead, every, you know, it goes up over time. Taxes, the last, insurance, last year your tax labor. Went down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And... If you don't, if you can't stay above, eventually, you know, if you have a profit here, what happens that, you know, that cost eventually eats it away over X amount of years and suddenly, oh, we're losing money. So that's, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard for people to, I think people just don't realize the stuff we have to 
deal with in terms of trying to stay afloat. And that's a problem when your milk price goes like this overnight. Yeah. Especially this year. And if it's not, if, if the milk price just steadily increased every year, you wouldn't have to do, we wouldn't have to do that because we'd always have that margin would always be there. And it's, we yeah. look back now, the stats show in like the 90s, the milk price is almost the same as what it was at certain times and two, three decades ago, and your costs have double and triple folded. So it's it's a tough gig these farms have to survive by, and that's why the average the average uh, size of a farm has gone from 50 cows to, what, 500? I don't know the numbers, but they're, um, this just look at the graph, and the average size of the farm has just gone exponentially up just to survive, because if not, they would be sold off, because it's not possible to uh, do the math and make it. Yeah, and it, it's sad when, if, you know, you got a, you got a guy who wants to go out and even he's like, yeah, I want to start a 50, you know, 50 cow, hundred cows tie stall. Like he wouldn't, he wouldn't make it. A, a, he probably wouldn't be able to sell his milk to anyone because with just everything going on, milk is so tight. It'd be you know impossible to get a market to sell your milk. And then B is just the numbers don't work out, unfortunately anymore. And that's why you see these small farms going out and then, and you know, they don't have another generation to take over. Mm. That's, you know, that's a lot of it. I remember when we were over in Europe, especially Germany, you know, one thing in Europe that's kind of neat is they, uh, they're very robotic and automation driven. Remember they had a lot of robotic dairies. They had, uh, robotic feed pushers. They had one, one place had a, had a better, Remember, mm-hmm. it was like it was like a trolley that ran in the rafters of the barn and would drop sand into the stall. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember who asked the one farmer if it was Mike or uh, one of the students. But they said, you know, why invest in all these robots? And they said, well, we're trying to convince the next generation to come back. And that's that's true. It's like, you know, it's. I think in Europe they struggle with that. Where I remember uh, they also said when we went to Germany that having a busload of college students showing up to visit a farm is very rare over there. And so it was kind of, you know, I guess I don't know if it's just in the United States, there's a lot more, we're just more rural, there's a lot more interest in agriculture across the board people going home or i mean i guess at the same time i said a lot of you know there's a lot of farms have gone out because people haven't returned home but um i don't know what do you think yeah, kind of i'm kind of tangenting <laughs> no i just look at the graph over the years and how so many farms have gone out just because they couldn't make the financials work 100 years ago everyone either had a farm the grandparents had two or three cows or their neighbor had two three five ten cows and nowadays it's what one out of a hundred, a thousand people has a farm. I mean, it's just gone crazy, the ratio of how many people are actually directly involved in agriculture. And because of that, so many less heirs are around that are exposed to it and and want to uh, get involved in it just because they don't know what it's about. They don't like the lifestyle. They, they have other options. And so having an heir to basically a, a succession plan to pass on your, your pride and your you're well, even working for your whole life to the next generation is a huge part of every business. And it's, it's so sad when you have these generations that either don't have kids or they have all kids that have moved off the farm and doing other things. And they either have to find someone that 
out of the family that wants to buy their farm or bring in a uh, an employee as a part as a uh, as a partner to an extent or it's uh yeah farms take a lot of pride in being able to pass on their life's works to their their next generation and it doesn't happen as much as it used to just because there's so many other options out there that nowadays are a lot less work but it's very special when you get someone that wants to do this and take on the take on the responsibility of the family the family jewel essentially and continue it on yeah and you have that what they call it the three generational the three the three generation curse or whatever the first one builds it the second one maintains it and the third one come comes crashing down just you know that's what people say it's, it's very rare for any business to pass on generation to generation it's just it's hard to do um so it's 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 unique when you get to see a lot of farms out there who have i mean we we went to school with a guy who what their farm was started back in the 1700s he's about the ninth generation yeah something crazy like that it's like wow that's <laughs> yeah because the first generation puts all the sweat work into it the second generation's old enough to remember that work so Helped he sees out, yeah sees it all going into it and then the third or fourth more or less maybe gets handed to them a successful business and maybe they don't treat it as respectfully because they don't know well what went into it and they over buy things or their head's a little too big and they go too far the other way with some of these big automatic parlors and they get too far in the hole with these crazy investments and maybe things come crashing down. So hopefully we can <laughs> avoid that curse and keep things running strong and uh, just got to know the markets, know the financials and know where you sit and what, uh, what you're capable of and be probably on the conservative side, especially in years like this and just take what's given to you and do the best you can with what you got. You're the third or fourth as well, right? You're I'm, in that I'm the fifth. You're the fifth. You got one more, so it's yeah. even further along. Yeah, so my our dairy was bought <clears throat> back in 1899. Family came over from Ireland during the potato famine. And they settled, I think it was in Glens Falls, New York, which is, for those who don't know, I think it's up near Albany in that area. It's a couple hours away from where I live now in Groton. And they bought the farm, and yeah, it's it's pretty pretty cool. A lot of history. The uh, the original farmhouse was built in the early 1800s, so that's just about 200 years old. Just about when my parents remodeled it 20 years ago, they took one of the walls out, and we found a Reader's Digest from the 1940s. Someone had stuck in the wall. So before we patched the walls up, we actually made our own little time capsule. I was only probably seven or eight at the time, and we all wrote up a little blurb about who we were and put it in a box and set it in the set it in the wall. And who knows? Hasn't been how, open to this day. No, no, no. And I uh, I know wh- like what wall it's in. Like I could point and say it's in that wall, but it'll be interesting to see uh, down the road who discovers it. Yeah, I mean, it could either be a carry or who knows? We could be long gone and someone else has it. I mean, like we, we found, this is kind of wild. My dad, uh, found old tombstones of the family who owned the dairy before we had it back in the 1800s. And their, their last names were diamond. And some of these tombstones were the kids, they're like three, four years old who died. It's just like, wow. You see stuff like that. It was just like in the woods somewhere. I think we were clearing out a hedgerow and they found them hopefully we didn't you know disturb their wherever they were buried but we had no idea they were there so it's uh 
yeah, it's it's cool. There's a lot of history, and uh, like you said, the same. Unfortunately, you had that barn fire. That's mm-hmm. that's uh, not a hopefully something yeah, he, we never have to. No deal one got with hurt, ever. and yeah, it's probably went as best as it did because uh, everyone was safe and the animals got out. So it's uh, that's, just yeah. had to start over and and hit the reset button and do the best you can with what was a uh, what the situation was made of. Yeah. So, uh, kind of to close this out, uh, put you on the spot here, but this is, you know, like I said, when we started this channels, hopefully to educate people and show, uh, you know, show people who aren't familiar with what we do, you know, what we do, how we do it, why we do it. So I guess if you had one thing that you'd like people to know that, uh, you know, what is something that you do or that we do that is, uh, um, you know, that you think is maybe misrepresented, misrepresented in the public or people just have a bad understanding of food security probably comes to mind. Um, there's so many different classica- classifications of milk, whether you're conventional, non-GMO, organic, I could go on and on about all these different types, but those are probably the three most, uh, um, popular at this day and age, um, all milk is safe that is in the store. It gets tested. I can't tell you how many times. And yes, we use antibiotics on our farms. And yes, the milk from antibiotics can't be sold. So if we have a sick cow, we have to basically separate her out, treat her, and put her in a pen that's designated to get dumped down the drain, just like we had to do in March with our whole herd. But every day, these farms that have cows that you have to treat, um, get isolated in a separate separate group and that milk goes down the drain and it can't be sold. And every day when the milk truck driver comes to the farm to pick up your milk, he tests the milk and makes sure it comes up clean, that there's no traces of antibiotics. And if there ever is, you have to do what farms did back in March and dump that entire days or two days worth of uh, product down the drain and you lose all of that uh, income and don't get reimbursed for it in most cases. So it's uh, in the farmer's best interest to never have a screw up and do the best they can. So it's foolproof. What it gets tested on the farm, it goes to the plant, gets tested again. Then it gets turned into a powder or uh, liquid milk or ice cream or butter. And then that gets product tested uh, as it goes out on the market. So it's, you hear farms that use antibiotics that don't use antibiotics. And there's so much so much uh, scare or hype in that non-GMO farms, GMO farms, these genetic modified uh, farms that uh, have Roundup Ready corn and this and that, and all this stuff has so much science into it that no matter what the label is on the bag that you're buying at the grocery store, there's so many um, benchmarks that all these products have to go through to be safe for human consumption that it's uh, sad to hear all this bad rap and just to have everyone have a strong sense of food security that what they're buying at the grocery store is past so many levels of checkpoints that no matter what your preference is, organic, conventional, non-GMO, it's it's all extremely safe for you. And none of it has all this bad, hyped-up crap in it that people are saying um, is bad for you. It's, um, yeah, for the most part, it's just trying to um, put a good name on all these different farmers. They all have different slightly different business models but they're all trying to do the same thing in the end of the day which is feed an ever-growing population of how many billion people are going to be on this planet in 2050 it's an exponentially growing number that's 
a curve that slowly started to grow up and then in the next 30 years it's basically going to go straight up so it's an incredible feat that these farmers have to do to uh, feed the world and that's exactly what they're trying to do and whether what the label is on the product they know they have to make a good product and healthy product because it's going to go through 20 different tests before it comes to a grocery store your plate at the restaurant and and it's going to has to pass all those tests or will get thrown out and they won't get paid so just everyone needs to know no matter what your beliefs are no matter what you choose to invest in to put in your bodies or feed your kids that all food is safe and healthy and that's why it's there for you and and um yeah to have faith in in what we do every day and we do it for millions of different reasons but uh yeah it's it's there and it's for you and we hope uh hope we can keep doing it for years to come and that we can survive this tough uh pandemic that's created these margins even smaller but um we'll uh, we'll s- come together as a crew and uh continue on i think that's a great way to end it we have uh the safest and most secure foods food supply in the world and we'll continue to do that every single day and farmers will always show up to do what we got to do and so tyler thank you do you have an introduction on who you're bringing next week or is that yet to be determined uh yet to be determined i have a couple names in the air i don't want to i want to get this one done and out the door before i uh get too far ahead of yourself i better make sure i can get this on youtube and get it up and running before i start lining up more people so (laughs) i have people in mind i'll put it that way so yeah so thanks for watching uh please uh stay posted and i'll be posting like i said hopefully every week um like subscribe share it comment um if you write a comment i'm definitely gonna read it because i'll probably get like 50 views (laughs) so go ahead and uh uh, write whatever whatever feedback you think uh is appreciated so thank you everyone and uh yeah tyler thank you great and uh appreciate being the guinea pig and uh love to come back someday yeah we'll uh we'll get you back on for an update so very good thanks everyone Yeah, thanks.